Bonjour. Ni hao. Como estas? Welcome to Champagne Strategy. Listen to this episode if you dare, but you've been warned, there's no going back. So the first episode this year is going to be a bit of a different format. We wanted to experiment with four of us actually in a panel discussion, kind of similar to if you've listened to the All In podcast. And what we have today is four of us, uh, myself, obviously, with uh, Baiba Madisoni. Uh, she's a strategist and freelancer. And Uri Burichin, who's also a brand consulting and strategy freelancer. And then also Paul Meller, who's a Brit, who now lives in France and quite adept in film production and video strategy. So the four of us get together and we just shoot the breeze. So this is a bit of an experimental episode let me know what you think but i think some really interesting parts come out here which are applicable to everyone including things such as critiquing strategy frameworks that are widely used in advertising through to things like the aida model and other orthodox ways of growing brands we also mentioned things like airbnb's switch from quote performance marketing to quote brand and the implications there all the way through to what an executive producer does in film and lots of other things i discussed so anyway sit back relax have a listen and tell me what you think and if this interests you then we can also do some more so without further ado ladies and gentlemen we have paul meller uri uruchin baiba madisoni and john james that's the ad isn't it for hamlet cigars you know the old one where the guy has to take passport photos. And oh yes, yes, in the nineties. And every time he takes the shot, it like sort of you know kind of goes down or like it when he's really far forward. And then yeah, it's a classic. I don't know who wrote it. That I think AMV had it. The immediate suspect for posting such things is usually Paddy Gilmore, who has his uh, yeah. humor in advertising newsletter, which is quite good. That roller skates one as well. You know, the roller skates in, uh, is it Reno or something? Have you seen that one? It's very 90s. And it's like, don't do crack, roller skate or something. Have you seen that one? That's hilarious. No, I haven't seen that one. Is that a real thing? Yeah, yeah, it was one of those local TV ads that just go really harebrained. One of those really low productions is, don't do crack, guys. Don't eat candy. Come and roller skate. And this guy's offering, um, like promoting his roller skate rink in like Reno, Nevada. <laughs> Uh, it's the funniest thing ever. I'll have to, I'll have to link it to you after. Or just go to YouTube and watch it. Yeah. It's like it's the best. How big a deal was that Brian Chesky thing? I mean, you said it was all over your LinkedIn. So I mean, I talked about this maybe a year and a half ago, but it's something I observed way before that. Is that in startups, generally, when Uri, you said very eloquently. Early on, when there's less competitors, a bit more white space, you can kind of get away with being a bit more product orientated, going in, taking a loss if things don't work out and sort of being yeah. a bit more product led. And more sales focused because because there's just so much white space. You're just kind of like converting, converting, converting. You're, don't, you're not worried about demand. Yeah. You only start worrying about demand where that kind of like sales slows down and uh, the category becomes, becomes more crowded. And then yeah. startups discover marketing yeah. yeah so so that's exactly what's happened to airbnb right <laughs> i think you know there's been a couple of headwinds like the funding environment obviously as interest rates have gone up um the cost of funding and debt has gone up so therefore there's an increased need to show positive unit economics very quickly so a lot of startups are having to pivot from like a growth mindset to a 
profitable growth or profit mindset, which has been a big change. And then I think secondarily, some of the yields from some of these preferred mediums that they were used to using to to get this demand and customer acquisition, like Facebook direct response, Google direct response, SEO content, uh, a lot of the yields from those have plummeted and the price has gone up, obviously. So therefore, that's really stressed out their customer acquisition cost. So they've had to think beyond those immediate channels to like bigger things. And I think, was it last year or year before they were talking about investing in brand instead of, you know, Google search ads mm-hmm. instead? And mm-hmm. it's like this big thing. And like everyone in marketing was like, yeah, well, duh, I told you so. <laughs> and then uh, like basically a year later, he's on Lenny Rivitsky's podcast. Now, Lenny used to be one of the product managers at BMB, and he's got this very famous podcast that's in part of the Dreesen Horowitz A16Z sort of network along many other podcasters that are famous. He's had a lot of success and has like millions of downloads. And um, he's kind of like very big in the, uh, the SaaS or tech community, especially product managers. And he interviews basically Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb again. And Brian just describes hiring <laughs> the ex-marketing head of comms at Apple, some Japanese guy, I forget his name. And then also Johnny Ives, who used to be the lead designer at Apple and basically have changed the whole culture away from product manager, engineering led culture to more of a marketing led culture with what they call product PMMs or product marketing managers at sort of the top and made some pretty controversial statements around the ability for product managers and their existing role to be effective in the new environment. And anyway, so it was just very interesting what what comes out of that. But again, basically TLDR, he discovered marketing. But I also think he's still, uh, when you can like hear about, uh, when you hear things he's been talking about lately, he's still, he's still very much also talking to the investment community when he talks about things like experience or he talks about AI purchase that they've made. Uh, it's always going to be like that. I think tech is different in the sense that it always has to keep promising big disruptions that open up completely new categories and scalability, 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 and just a lot of the promising goes back to that. But that's also marketing, isn't it? (laughs) Investor relations, yeah. That's a big part of, I think, where startups get their bad rap from is like the the ability to like sell the new dream. Yeah, demand for, you know, demand for stocks is also building demand. It's one man, two governors. Essentially, like if you're in the uh, tech scene, there's two, there's two governors. There's your audience, the people that you're trying to uh, attract the attention of, and then there's the investors. And I think it's going to be ever thus. Well, it certainly has been. It'd be interesting to see what kind of shakes out post global recessionary times where the price of credit has skyrocketed and price of debt what that does to the investment community and how they invest and the relationships that startup or the tech scene has with its investment community. I think it's been pretty solid and uh, un- fairly unchanged for the last, what, 10, 15 years. Yeah. What do you think, Baba? I feel very disconnected from this conversation. <laughs> 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 Okay, you know, tell us something that, uh, that's been interesting that's happened in the last we week or two. Use my New York trip as a, as a hook to talking about uh, in-house creative and brief templates. My God, people are obsessed with the template as if they're not all the same or it's not always about the content. Terrible. Baiba, you're like a historian of... A historian or... Yeah, not a, not, not a librarian, like historian. Like you care about the, the provenance of different frameworks. 
whether they be briefing frameworks or strategy frameworks? I mean, at the moment, I think that I have gone too much into the past, that I have also observed and did a lot of these interviews with strategists about how they are doing the strategy currently. And I think that I need to move into the next step to kind of figure out like what could be like, I don't know, the vision for the planning or how the planning could look like after like, I don't know, three to five years. Well, um, in the last, (laughs) since we last talked, I was connected with an acquaintance of of someone I I, I respect um, in the UK and um, he's very big in the AI community. Anyway, uh, he connected me with someone and we've been creating a qualitative research product mostly for tech, but it can be used for qual interviews as well, like one-on-one interviews around discovery. So obviously, uh, Baba, when some planners start their process, they may start with some sort of discovery-based you know, qualitative research, as well as looking at secondary research and and um, asking some experts in the, in the area. And obviously, that qualitative research process is very time-consuming. If you do it properly as well, it, you're talking to hard to reach people at length and then having to synthesize their answers into something and then mine lots of data, read between the lines and pull out little nuggets that you can use. And sometimes the smallest details that come out in these conversations can be like the thing that is the impetus behind your whole approach for the strategy for this client. And what I was trying to do with with this guy is create a framework that makes that whole thing easier using LLMs or AI to synthesize and do that hard searching, but at very high quality, better than a human can, uh, which is difficult to design, Um, and then pull out those little nuggets. And then the human filters those nuggets into things that are probably feasible and and viable for that account. I think that would be a really cool tool for for strategists. I think that it was to you, Uri. The stage is yours. (laughs) Uh, Oh, sorry. I have someone at the door. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Playing hard to get. I mean, like, it can be interesting. And I think that there would be a lot of people who would value uh, a a lot of, like, they would get a lot of gain out of it. I think that um, in my case, I have done these qualitative interviews on my own, some kind of, like, uh, based on my own interest. It it hasn't been like, oh, this is like a proper research project. It was more like I'm trying to test my own skills, how I can interview people and all that stuff. I have also worked for projects. For example, I use my qualitative interview skills in the project with uh, Paul and the team. One of my pet peeves about marketing, and it has been my pet peeves, like almost since joining the industry proper. I actually wrote about it, but but you know how they say that the things you that make you fall in love with someone then are all also become the thing, the things that annoy you about that someone, right? If they're I don't know very carefree, then with time you just wish that sometimes they could be serious or or things like that. And I think it's for me like that with marketing, and it has been a quite a long affair between me and marketing. But one of the things is that on one hand. When I joined marketing, I also uh, quit whatever was left from my academic career at the time. I was uh, supposed to get a PhD and I chose marketing because it was more dynamic and more exciting. And because I really liked the fact that you didn't have to engage with 20 years of arguments or, or hundreds of years of arguments every time you had a good idea or had to write 20 pages of footnotes every time you had a good idea. Marketing seemed to be this magpie discipline that steals all the good ideas from all the other disciplines and just uses whatever works. And that was very exciting for me, the idea that if I had a good idea, instead of writing 20 pages of footnotes, I could just 
prove that idea over three PowerPoint slides. And it works for me, it works for the client. And lo and behold, a couple of months later, I see it working in the market. The way that gets then flipped over into a pet peeve is you realize very quickly that one of the biggest drawbacks to our discipline, the practitioner side of the discipline, is that there's very little sense of history. All the frameworks, all the ideas, with the exception of, of a few true celeb ideas, they like come out of nowhere. They were made up by no one. And agencies constantly, I, I think brand frameworks are, are, are a great example because every creative agency will take some kind of a jumble chimera of the, of, of the, of old networks, relabel them randomly. Well, not randomly. They always try to be thoughtful about it, but the increasing mutation of the idea is almost uh, impossible to, to avoid. And a very simple example for that is the get who to buy um, framework where so many people just call it get to buy. And therefore there's even an, an increased chance that there will be no insight in, in the way they capture creative strategy. So, and that's why I've always thought it's very important to have practitioners with a sense of history. And Baiba is a rare example for that because she's a practitioner with a real sense of history and she would be quite relentless about it. She will go and start digging up where did it come from? Where did it start? Well, can I tell a fun fact? I did this creative strategy framework session where I explained like, you know, the history of the frameworks a little bit, like, you know, what's the oldest one and uh, kind of like uh, new, new versions of the frameworks. And there was one guy who sent me a direct message and he was like, how can you use these frameworks if you don't uh, invite these guys into the room and ask for their permission or that they could show these frameworks? For example, Stephen King. <laughs> And I was like, dude, why is dead? Like, how can I invite him in the room? You know, and I understood that this person doesn't understand the history at all. And then this guy told me that he is training strategists in Toronto in creative strategy. And I was like, what the hell are you training if you don't know the history? At least know Stephen King and Stanley Pollitt, the yeah. godfathers of the discipline. So what's happening in your world, Paul? By the way, I was watching, was it Netflix or one of the streaming apps? And I saw Boiling Point has a new series. Is that a spin-off from that thing that you were involved in? Yeah. yeah. Wow. It was uh, a four-part series. So when we made the film, we were then nominated for four BAFTAs. And then off the, uh, off the back of those four BAFTA nominations, the BBC uh, got in touch and discussions were had around making a series out of it. And so then... BBC bought the rights to make a four-part series that went live. So that was in October on the BBC. It was given what is called, so it's on Sunday evenings at nine o'clock on BBC One, which is called like the Downton Abbey slot. It's like the the slot on um, British TV. Wow. And so, yeah, so that was every Sunday night uh, for four Sundays in a row. And then I think now the plan is they will then, the way that the BBC is able to make money as a public broadcaster is they then sell that to other channels across the world. So it'd be sold to a chat, you know, hopefully a channel in the U S a channel, you know, in Australia, you know, where, you know, wherever, and hopefully the, the boiling point roller coaster continues. Wow. So do you earn, I mean, I like to say like, what was your involvement at the beginning? Was it for production or. So, I mean, on the film I was, so I'm listed, I've got a credit as an exec producer. So, okay. um, 
it's been it's uh, <laughs> it's been um, uh, like in terms of the first film I've ever got involved in. It literally it's took pretty a lot well, of, you know. Like, <laughs> like uh, it's um, it's still it's still you know it's still newsworthy now. You know, I mean, I got I got involved in the project in uh, 2020. So I got involved in like February 2020, and it's still, you know, it's still kind of uh, banging the drum, and it gives me stuff to talk about, and people reference it, and well, so in terms of a first project to be involved in, it literally couldn't couldn't have been any better, which is amazing. So, so um, I've always wanted to ask, what does an exec producer do? That's what everyone asks, because <laughs> uh, it's a pretty loose title. <laughs> It's like a board member, I think. Yeah, like yeah, exactly, exactly like that. It's it's almost like a, almost like a board member or like a non-exec. You kind of get involved as as much as you want, really, and as much as the team that are making it feel like they want your involvement. To be an exec producer, you have to invest. So there has to be there's a level of investment that comes. You know that that's kind of. That's your primary role is to invest in the project in the same way that you would have like a, a board made up of non-execs. They all kind of bring something like a, a different like lens or a different set of skills. So that's, you know, that's kind of I think that's a good analogy, really. But film is a really difficult thing to make money in. It's, in, it's incredibly difficult. What's the old adage? If you've got a large fortune in you know, open a restaurant and you'll you'll soon have a small fortune. It, I think it's the same. It's the same with film. It's one of the quickest. It's one of the quickest ways to to lose money. Hey, you yeah. know what I found out? I was doing some research around brand and a- ATL, BTL, above the line, below the line, and I found out that the film industry uses the same terminology for people like exec directors and some more of the senior, less hands-on staff uh, that are involved in a film are called above the line, and then below the line are basically all the run-of-the-mill sort of like workers that produce the film, the actors, and everyone else. Is, is that do you use that terminology? I've always wondered. I've never used that in film. Obviously, I use it day to day for advertising, but like I've never used it in film. Well, apparently that's where it was an old uh, thing from Hollywood. And and um, so when I was doing that research into brand and like where does this dichotomy come from with a more mass media sort of TVC production, it, it came from because when you're making TVCs back in the 50s and 60s, it was you were basically tapping into film studios and the yeah. networks they had to produce these things it was very technically difficult and i think some of the just the memetics of effect of using that terminology sort of transpired over into png at the time who started to use these terms as an yeah. accounting treatment and that sort of like flowed in from there and it still affects us today in terms of like when you say atl everyone thinks okay that's that's a big video production nice shoot you know mass media tv spots Super Bowl, like that's instantly what comes to mind. And if you say anything in BTL, they're kind of like, oh, well, that's point of sale and I don't know, Google search and stuff like that. Like they lump them all in together. But it's a term that's very old. It's sort of shouldn't kind of be used anymore, but still does. Yeah. I love that. I love how there uh, there are these, it's a little bit what we're talking about with the frameworks, like these hidden fingerprints mm. from history that people just don't realize that, that you know like we use language that without knowing the provenance of it i've become weirdly obsessed there's a there's an instagram handle that i've now follow that's all about the history of london i know obviously like as a brit why would i not be interested in london but 
Yeah, and it's all about like tiny, tiny little things about the history of London that have been preserved and now everyone kind of ignores and you have to be a bit of a historian to un- to know that this little alleyway that everyone walks past was once, you know, the most famous or most influential alleyway in London or whatever it is. I love stuff like that. Even just the name itself, like was a Latin word, Londinium. It was like a, a Roman city. <laughs> yeah. In a swamp. <laughs> <laughs> in a swamp, yeah. Um, and hey, the other thing I learned about London, I was talking to a pricing expert and he said the fire of London, I forget, when is this the 1500s or 1600s, uh, like ages yeah. ago, 1200s, or I don't know, long time ago. The ferry people um, across the Thames would ferry people from one side to the other, you know, when the whole place was burning down and they would actually use surge pricing um, based on how severe the fire was and the proximity to the boats. So like when Uber came out and like, you know, hey, we're using dynamic search price. I'm like, no, nah, that's from the 1200s. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. London London did that ages ago, you know, on the, on the Thames. Isn't that cool? But of course, you know, they might have been the people that if you owned the ferry, you know, you could have started the fire in the bakery. You know, you kind of create. Oh, you know, now you're talking. Yeah, some underhand tactics. I thought you were uh, taking this into the question of... Uh, concepts that refuse to die because i understand there was a lot of uh, discussion about yay old marketing funnel in the Ooh, in the last yes. few weeks so Ooh. um so what was the linkedin discussion about the, okay 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 so because i mean this is a framework right that was created in 1898 or something but it, it sort of stems from this aida model which was attention interest mm-hmm, desire mm-hmm. action which was a an old model that was created by some, it was to train salespeople for door-to-door sales. And then it's sort of been bastardized over the years to be adopted in some agencies around attention, interest, desire, action, i.e. everything starts with, sorry, awareness, interest, desire, action. And it was all about justifying um, building awareness prior to a sale occurring using Marcoms, right? And that's kind of not where it comes from, even though it was very convenient. So I just sort of pointed out to some people that, um, you know, over the years, it has been sort of taken perhaps out of context. And ironically, the people who advocate for awareness, interest, desire, action, generally advertising people, they do that saying that you need to build awareness before a sale when ironically, it was created by salespeople to sell. (laughs) I, I think the thing about marketing funnels is that they have, they are much more bespoke than people realize. People kind of like are trying to find this generic solution, but it's just not the way marketing funnels work. The whole point of a funnel is mapping the journey that is specific to your brand and your category and figuring out how that works, doing a lot of quant and qual along the way And then if you're lucky and everything has worked well, you kind of figure out what exactly are your levers for investment, for activity, and then you can start having impact. And I think on top of that, there's also, there's a lot of interesting research. So there was, uh, this is really one of my favorite pieces of research from the last couple of years um, that Google did about the, um, how do they call it? Yeah, the messy middle um which has just huge huge implications for brands it's it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating piece of research so it's interesting because a a lot of the critiques about the funnel are that it's not that linear and in messy middle google kind of like really proves with with data and other things that yes it's not quite that linear and actually 
um, I think exploration and consideration tend to almost like happen in tandem. And I like that because I like things that happen in tandem a little bit, like, you know, uh, where to play and how to win two questions, kind of like in tandem guiding strategy. But the thing is that to understand it, or to practically work on it, you still have to sometimes pretend kind of like a, a willing suspension of disbelief and pretend that it's linear in order to be able to look at things side by side. What I liked probably the most about the messy middle was not just how messy the middle was, was the importance of this. I mean, I don't, I don't remember if they shy away from calling it awareness but there's this, you know, ambient presence and goodwill to build for a brand before the funnel can start working. And I just thought it was terrific to get that from Google because this is the world's like the best thing for Google would be that this ambient awareness didn't matter, that it yeah. was all this kind of like immediate digital funnel that a lot of performance marketing was trying for a while to pretend exists. And then you suddenly had like the one company that probably had the most to gain from things being like that going, well, actually, you really have to build awareness for the whole funnel to even work. And that just felt, oh, it's marketing again. It's well, like the world's shittiest game of Cluedo. Marketing in the library with the funnel. There's a bit more story to that. What what happened, I've written about this, is like the performance marketing sort of channels, if you want to label them that, like Facebook and, and, and Google, have realized that once they run out of their very high quality, high buyer intent inventory in the advertising system, right? Very small yeah. portion of the market. We know it's like, what? 99% other people that are out of market, 1% in or, you know, varying degrees of that. They figured out that if you want to make more money, <laughs> you have to increasingly sell advertising services that cover the other 90% of the out market people. And that's where you make the bulk of your, your revenue. So they've all figured out that they've exhausted all this. And this has been very synonymous. The timing of that thing was very synonymous with what they did with, in the back end, where they changed the attribution of the words that you type in. So they started obscuring 20 to 40 to now 50% of your budget. So you don't know where 50% of your budget is going. And they say, oh, don't worry about that because it's building brand. And that's the excuse they're using now. And Meta have done the same thing. They're doing it under the pretense of privacy, but it's actually self-serving in the fact that it actually ends up costing you more money. Um, there's probably some method to it, but it's also a really sneaky way of selling junk inventory at scale uh, under the pretense of building brand. Yeah, I mean, yeah. another related irony to that piece of research is that of course it came out uh, very early in the pandemic. Yeah. So it came out exactly during a period where suddenly all marketing funnels had this irregular spike that, of mm. course, many people were immediately quick to say, oh, oh, it will last forever. It will last forever. And of course, it didn't. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's in, one of the things that uh, I've always thought about marketing funnels, and I, I don't know, there's like a gazillion of them. One of the things that's interesting about them, though, is that they because they are vertical and like, you know, getting narrower, whichever kind of model, it gives the impression that there's a gravitational pull, that someone can drop from like one level to the next level. And of course that's, that's, that, that suggests there's some sort of inherent propulsion or pull or something that can take someone through, you know, down through a funnel, which of course that's not necessarily the case. You know, um, the public are walking around 
being irrational, you know, and selfish and self-serving and not going in the direction. They probably even walk around in circles like, you know, like the infinity loop of um, the messy middle, or they might even just try and climb back up, <laughs> you know, and, it, and the, the funnels don't necessarily account for those, those things. Um, although to the point that Uri made, I really like, so I completely agree that every brand has its own funnel in inverted commas, you know, that they are all bespoke to the brand and the, the category that it operates in and all those types of things. The one that I, uh, the example that I saw recently was the one from Stolly. So the CMO, I can't remember their name, the CMO at Stolly, the vodka, you know, like classic, I'm sure there's a bit of reverse engineering that it's in the shape of a, um, a cocktail shaker, but it's, it's, I thought it was a really uh, neat way to dis to kind of distill down their funnel, and they've clearly thought about it because um, it looks still down, yeah, 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 still down. <laughs> still down, yeah. But it's like it's not even really kind of funnel shaped. <laughs> it's got like odd, like weird bits in it, you know. Like it kind of it's not a, it's not a linear, um, it's not a linear shape. So, Baba, I want to hear your take on this. Just before, I, I agree with you, Paul, in terms of I think that the danger of having this sort of uh, upended pyramid is that um, they think that more at the top will lead to proportionally more at the next stage and down. And I, I notice there's lots of disproportionality in that. And that's where I think people make the mistake. They go, okay, go more top of funnel. That will lead to bottom of funnel. But especially with smaller brands and challenger brands who are not dominant in the market, that is not the case. Those raw ratios do not apply. And there's a lot of disproportionality. So you can make, you know, big bets on, you know, upper funnel and that does not translate down to bottom funnel sales. And that's, that's the thing I always teach people. Like just be really care of those causal steps, but between the layers of however you build it, because you want to be very sure that, that applies like mathematically before you go and do that. And yeah, anyway, Baiba, what do you think? I have a question more to you guys, like why there was this kind of big kind of buzz around this Dan, I think his name is Dan White's uh, post because there were like, I don't know, hundreds of comments and everybody tried to kind of uh, uh, express their opinion that, you know, he's not right and they are, they, are, they are correct about the way how the funnel should need to be used. And I was just a little bit surprised, like, you know, why can't he kind of, you know, publish the way he thinks about these funnels? Yeah, because that is my, my, my kind of impression. Is, is like, this you your know? first time on, the, on, is this your first time on social media, by the <laughs> No, I mean, like you guys posted on the on our group chat, like, you know, like, hey, this is like a conversation that has been a, like a hot topic, like the past week. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, what's so special about this conversation? Someone okay. who is, like, you know, writing well, I'll, books. I'll, 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 I, mean, I mean, the fact that is, it, this is a testimony to, mm -hmm. to Dan's success. Mm -hmm. Because people absolutely love the way he captures things graphically. So his posts get disproportionate, uh, well-deserved, I underline, well-deserved disproportionate attention. Mm -hmm. And that's why they have the power to tip over critical mass and reignite uh, old arguments. That's, that's all. Yeah, some folks just got like more more likes to their comments than the author itself. And I was just surprised, like, what's going on? Like, why there is some kind of like a court, yeah. public court to, to this author uh, on social media like that. Well, I, I think anytime you see controversy in mm -hmm. and lots of like 
comments generally that's indicative of everyone kind of being right to an extent and there no being no clear answer and i find that's the interesting stuff because and like you said Uri, at the beginning i think it's indicative of the fact that everybody has their own sort of funnel and their own opinion on it, and that's causing this like there is no one funnel so when someone tries to create this like funnel to rule them all like lord of the rings um inevitably if people go no it doesn't work like that because my funnel works like this so i think i think it's going to prove our point at the beginning of the discussion to a certain extent. Yeah, but I can say like uh, we did this uh, survey about the strategy models, both in creative strategy and also in brand strategy. And we are now talking in the depths about the different type of funnels and the meaning of the funnels. I can tell you honestly from the research findings that people are positioning brands with get who to buy model, which is kind of I would, my apologies, say a little bit ridiculous, but that's what I can see based on the survey findings, that that's one of the most common used framework model uh, for uh, brand positioning. <laughs> and then we are talking in a depth about the, 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 the different type of funnels. I would say that majority of the audience may not even go that deep. Just this past week in New York, I was mm -hmm. I was teaching this framework and I referred to it as the uh, as as the framework that ate advertising. And I think it's mostly the biggest amount of damage I think it's in the UK but it's also quickly spreading. The idea that someone would use that framework as a positioning framework. Uh, so which framework are we I talking despair. about? I despair. Get who to buy. Usually, like nowadays, they are referring uh, referring to this newer version, which is get to buy. They are just skipping the aspect of who or element of who out, or they are combining get and who together. But the original one was get who to buy model, which was created for BPDO. How can you remove who? So originally, it's kind of like it's a get uh, audience, who oh. audience insight, and and so on so i mean it usually usually when the who is dropped you can kind of start suspecting that what you're gonna see and usually that's what you see is that they will specify the audience without adding any kind of insight and i mean insight in the broadest sense possible let's not fall into that debate <laughs> uh, oh dear oh dear positioning my word what do you guys think about positioning <laughs> this is the part that maybe we can stop record <laughs> what do we think about what do we think about positioning mm. are we just is it, what what is it is this is this some kind of uh, exposure therapy we're we're doing here today it's like well, we're um, just gonna dig no, out i I actually All the don't most know painful you... concepts in marketing. <laughs> well, I don't know your actual personal views on this. Sorry, I haven't I haven't looked into it. But um, this comes up a lot um, in yeah, yeah, early stage startups. They go, uh, because the, the new iteration of positioning is like, hey, we want to be a category creator. We want to create our own category, which is kind of like a, I, I say it's a, a sort of a remix of um, positioning and blue ocean strategy you know it's a new yeah, iteration yeah, 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 and, and yeah, yeah. i was like you want to create your own category I'm like, it sounds like a lot of hard work and then they're like isn't this just positioning like what are you guys talking about yeah anyway i found positioning always very fluffy and sort of self-serving in a way and not very valid but i don't know what do you guys think <sighs> by the way you want to start by just giving some general outline and background to the different concepts out there or no i mean like because i'm just gonna rant angry I mean, like I will give you, I, I will give you the floor because I, I will be just honest. Like, um, 
there was like my, one of my posts that there were like, again, one of my survey survey findings, I found like, uh, I think I was, um, I did the survey for junior strategists. And uh, one of the strategists who was uh, filling the survey, the person said like, you know, there needs to be some kind of like, uh, common glossary or common vocabulary to 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 the words or to these kind of um, phrases that we are using, uh, how we are defining uh, things in marketing and also in advertising. And of course, I wrote the post and it went kind of like in a mess because people said like there's no one way how to describe um, things or the, how to kind of define these terms. And uh, and I'm still, I'm kind of, I'm, 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 I'm not on the same page because I do believe that there's a way how um, people who are more like experts in the room uh, who can kind of give like uh, different explanations and from there we can drive to one common. But that's just my kind of background story about meanings and trying to define like, okay, what's your opinion about one particular uh, definition? Because if we will invite in the room, like, I don't know, 10 different strategists or, or no marketers that will all have like a different opinions about what brand positioning means honestly i got like i mean what what is the question what i mean what what is the question really i i come across this a lot i've, I've seen a lot of positioning brand positioning decks and mm -hmm. a lot of them are pretty fluffy they're not really based on any valid research and i find the bigger the brand gets the less positioning is actually valid anyway because you're dealing with such a heterogeneous sort of marker with light and heavy buyers mm -hmm. like they all you know, every person is different. They perceive the brand in different ways. They don't perceive things that you think are important. Um, and I find it all sort of regresses to like very basic reasons for purchasing. And then the brand positioning side of thing gets ultimately lost uh, unless it's a very clear sort of position. And they've, they've hammered something home for many, many years. It's very clear what the brand stands for. I find it's sort of like a mute kind of investment a lot of times. Yeah. And it's a way yeah, for people I, to avoid accountability. But I guess anyway. it's going to be quite confusing because, you know, it, uh, especially like startups, if indeed the category is quite blue ocean, then why is positioning important if you're not really positioning it against a competitive set? So, you know, why even use positioning if you're a startup and everything is white space and you don't have any direct comp competition? But ironically, if you're in a overly mature category, then everybody's more or less the same because everyone is trying to cover as much of the category as possible. And, and you're kind of like just really fighting over little pieces of the pie in terms of, of market yeah. share. So, um, I don't know if you're pizza hut and Domino's or something like that, then what's the point of positioning? And I think when you go into what science uh, has then, uh, wrought, over um, since the, um, how brands grow, then also in how brands grow, he essentially says, well, he, he doesn't say positioning is completely useless, but he kind of like says the importance of positioning has been overestimated a little bit, like the importance of difference has been overestimated. And the fact that both those things have been overestimated is, is related because they are overestimated for uh, for similar for similar reasons, according to the kind of like how brands grow uh, paradigm, I tend to go more uh, with Ritson on that in in this kind of bothism, where some of those concepts are very useful for strategy and marketing planning, 
even if their impact in isolation is not necessarily the end all and be all. And with positioning specifically, I find like on a very, very practical level without, without going into anything, um, I find that you have to discuss positioning because otherwise you just don't really know what you're going to do. You, you don't know really who you're going after and, and what you want them to think and what you're going to do about it. You can't, you can't really talk about those things without engaging with the question of positioning. I would like, second that. I have a good answer because this is my answer to funnels. Um, and this mm. came up in an interview I did with Gregory Kennedy in San Francisco. And he said he was a big fan of funnels. And I used to hate people saying, oh, sales funnels are important. I'm like, oh, this is like the dumbest thing ever, right? Um, I've sort of come around only because, and I've come around with positioning as well for the same reason and many other things that are technically maybe incorrect most of the time and maybe don't really exist. So there's no really solid scientific case for them because like you said, the secondary effect of talking about them or addressing them actually washes out the thing that is important in, in the client relationship or a nugget of strategy or something like that. So it's not the primary action. It's the secondary actions that spill out that um, are really good. And he makes this good analogy around funnels in terms of like, I use it to talk to non-marketers uh, to the CFO and they go, okay, well, what's this for? And he's like, that's top of funnel. And they, he's like, they get that. They get that. We need to assign some portion of the budget of things that are like longer term, like value creators rather than just harvesting sort of bottom of the barrel, high intense sort of sales leads all the time. And he's like, they understand that even though technically the funnels kind of exist and maybe not like, um, so th I think that was a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what? I think that uh, extends to uh, other concepts in marketing. So in, um, in why does the peddlers uh, sing uh, highly recommended by the way, by uh, Feldwick, uh, goes into this all rant about how um, brand essentialism is 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 bad for business and bad for brands and 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 almost like impractical. The idea that you're gonna capture the whole brand in a framework, and of course he's he gives quite a comical and well deserved comical representation of how brand frameworks usually work. This is kind of like, you know, seven circles saying different things and a whole lot of fluffy language inside them. I, I mean, I read I read that bit of that book and I kind of like nodded, nodded along and, and felt the pain. And I am I am really against brand essentialism. However, if you're going to have a discussion about the brand and what you're going to try and do, you got to give people some kind of a conceptual framework they can create a conversation around as a marketing team. And then I think it's very helpful to know what is the limit of the tool. And all tools have limitations. If you're going to try and screw in a screw with a hammer, that's a suboptimal tool. But you can, you know, learn the limitations and the, uh, the limitations of every tool and then choose the right tool for the job or do the job with a specific tool and don't expect that tool to become the end all and be all. But of course, the problem is marketing is kind of like a victim of its own marketing in that, in that sense. When marketing is marketing, marketing, because the way to sell those tools to a client and by the way, I've suffered greatly in my career because quite often I was unwilling to say about something, oh, this will be 
the solution to everything. This will be so transformative, kind of like, you know, be a proper snake oil salesman. I would actually uh, try and be more honest. And um, there's, I can tell you there's a very small market for that <laughs> in terms of agency leaderships. That's the, whole, that's the whole Very reason they, they employ agencies who, half the time. Who, who isn't willing to be a complete uh, intellectual whore. Um, so um, the only thing I'd add to that is like all models are wrong, some are useful. It's kind of like tragedy plus perspective. It's funny to you. I'm basically yeah. bleeding here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's one of those things, isn't it? Like people, people will lean on something, lean on a, a, a helpful crutch if it gets them forwards. You know, so if it's positioning, it's positioning. You know, if it's something else, it's something else. The one thing that I, I do notice quite a lot is that I'm talking about sort of marketers as a whole. Uh, people will prefer to be in the weeds, like discussing positioning, for example, for six months, because that puts off the difficult decision about going out in the world and getting noticed, because that's really yeah. exposing. And because uh, if you fail at getting noticed... <laughs> Then everyone, everyone in the business will go. Well, you you didn't get noticed. You suck. I'm going to stick the knife in, and you're going to get the sack. So they'll sort of hide in detail because it's just it, it's a much safer place. Yeah, no, and, I agree with Paul, and I would say it's even worse. And specifically, so I do both B2C and B2B, and in B2B, it's sometimes even worse because uh, B2B typically doesn't have the same time to market pressures of B2C, yeah. like B2C, a retailer said, this will be on the shelf at this date. And now you've got to make sure that once it's on the shelf, also the advertising is out, the whole marketing mix is out. In B2B, in many situations, the kind of like the deadline of the time to market is slightly more flexible. And then uh, not with startups, by the way, you have to, to show something, but with big corporate B2B mechanisms like, uh, I'm not going to name a client I've had, which was one of the world's biggest investment banks, for example. So for them, what Paul just described, it was even more than that, because they would get into this loop, right? Because it's impossible to ask some of those questions without really starting to think about what makes the organization tick and what's the meaning of it all. And it's kind of like this navel gazing process. And, and then they would get to the end of that process. There would be something, um, I used to call it the meaning trap. Essentially at the end of the process, at some point in the process, there'll be an answer that everyone is happy with finally, and everybody is willing to sign off. But yeah. then after a month or two of staring at that answer, people start feeling skeptical about it. Because organizations yeah. in that sense are like humans, right? You never, there's never like the ultimate answer to life, the universe and everything. You kind of like figure it out. And then after a while you start doubting it and you're evolving it a little bit. Um, and what happens in many of those organizations is that at that point people go, oh, so probably this isn't the right brand strategy and we need to start thinking about it again. And they will start a new brand strategy process without even realizing they haven't done anything with the old process. And the, one of the typical symptoms of that illness is when a client comes to me and says, um, well, we have a positioning statement and a vision, missions and, and values, 
but we think we need to articulate our brand promise. I'm like, why do you think more strategic copy is the answer? It rarely yeah. is. And you know, you cannot blame me that I don't like strategy, right? It's like I've made a, <laughs> I've made my entire life in it. But that is the issue. Humans just get in the way the whole time. Their humanity <laughs> gets in the way. Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe AI is the answer. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Fiber, what, what do you think of this? Because I'm um, like, I call this procrastination, like there's various forms of strategic yeah, yeah. procrastination, like at a small business level, it's obsessing with your logo design and getting business cards done. And I'm like, you should just be selling your product, getting it out there and getting feedback as soon as you can. Even startups, yeah. the same kind of thing. They get obsessed with building the product and, you know, being in stealth mode. I'm like, just get it out there at least uh, pre-sell the idea yeah. and do some testing, right? And I think the corporate version is kind of what you described is like this sort of loop of never-ending brand positioning or brand strategy that, yeah. you know, never resolved itself. And workshops. And then, and then also all the participants become increasingly just kind of like bitter about those things because they're sitting in workshops and they kind of feel we've had that discussion before. Um, We've, uh, we've had that discussion before. Why are we having it again? Nothing ever changes. Um, uh, you know, a little bit like uh, couples having the same argument again and again and again. You have to, you know, you have to find a breakthrough or things just get stagnated. And, uh, and before you know it, there's a divorce. Sorry, the analogy broke down at some point. but I <laughs> Yeah. That was that was a little bit close to therapy. That was, Dari. Yeah. Maybe the couples like to have arguments, so at the end they can resolve the tension in other ways. Maybe there's a silver lining here. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you, <laughs> that is a popular belief, but actually, there's a huge survivorship bias in marketing. Yeah. Right? In the whole of marketing, we only look at success stories. I mean, on balance, generally speaking, marketing loves a success story and there's a huge survivorship bias in 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 almost like the whole discipline as a result of that and uh, you know most products fail right and of course the extreme illness is thinking that big tech applies to everything like yeah. what would apple do yeah when a client asks me what would apple do i usually tell him well give me that kind of budget and i will tell you um so this came up just yesterday you know vicky ross paul i'm yeah, guessing of course yeah, yeah okay so yeah, she really. said she said on twitter i shouldn't say anything because i don't read campaign you know the the yeah. publication campaign but what is the purpose and benefit of turkey of the week and for people that don't know turkey of the week is the turkey is like a campaign that failed so she's asking like what's the purpose of every week featuring a campaign that failed and um no 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 turkey of the week isn't a campaign that failed necessarily it's a campaign yeah. that creative directors think is bad yeah oh that's not the same thing oh yeah. okay it's um, so the answer to that is it makes good gossip yeah <sighs> that is the answer that's why it's there it's, people oh. like it it's mean-spirited, and that's why people yeah. like it. In So in the tabloids in the UK, in the tabloid newspapers, you have these kind of gossip columns where, where uh, like, a, it's un, often under a pseudonym or, so, you know, this kind of uh, sleuth journalist will, will write almost like behind-the-curtain type stories, uh, you know, oh, yeah. kind of getting the celebrity gossip type thing. It's mean, it's 
it's just really low. I mean, I can't, I can't stand campaign. I'm so glad that they've gone out of print. It's it's not the it's not the trade press that it, it once was years ago. For me, I just I look at stuff like Turkey of the Week and I think, really, is that what we're doing? We're kind of uh, stepping on somebody and kind of really trying to push them into the ground by saying your work is shit. That just fe- that just feels. Uh, I got no time for that. Yeah, I hate it. Yeah. I mean, especially when we're dealing with such a high failure rate sort of like endeavor in the first place, like even the best ideas fail at such a high rate that it's inevitable that most of your stuff will probably not land very well. So like, I, I suppose that's why there's so much five ship bias because <laughs> so much failure. No one, no one wants to admit to how much failure there actually is. It's going to like politically swept under the, the piece. But when it's personal, you can learn a lot from failure, but I don't think it should be a personal attack. Yeah, because one of the biggest things that I'm, I really like about the industry is that there is a big emphasis on trying to give credit to the people that worked on bits of work. So if an ad goes out, it's very easy to find out what agency produced that work, the credit director, the copywriters, the production agency that made it, the director, the, you know, the, the DOP, like, you know, the, the, the people that were part of that work is really easy. And I think rightly, it's, it should be public knowledge who's made work. And it's not that I think people are uh, shy of work that fails. It's just, why do we have to, why does someone who sits in an ivory tower and it's a crumbling ivory tower, that's the reason why it's no longer in print, it's only digi, someone's gone, I'm going to be a bit of a and I'm going to say that works and you just think, off. But it's all, it's not ivory tower with Turkey of the Week, right? They basically no, the, get other creative directors to tell other creative directors that they think something is shit. But that's the point, you know, like the, the idea that campaign have pr- sort of proclaimed this is from like the idea that, well, we're campaign, you know, we're going to say that's a turkey of the week. Just think, I got no time for that. Fair play I to Vicky I think it's a good idea. For, for calling it out. What, what do you think, Baiba? You've been silent here. Well, I didn't know about Vicky's uh, post and I didn't know about this uh, kind of local tradition in, in UK market that... Uh, creative directors are basically kind of pointing fingers to each other's campaigns but uh it feels yeah it feels nasty i would say especially nowadays that we, we are trying to at least be more empathetic towards each other be more kinder towards each other at least publicly as far as we can but on the other hand yeah, some old traditions are mm. still there i would say yeah, that's fine i just thought um because like system one did this turkey the cans mm. t- can turkey sorry which was like analysis of all the Khan entrances over time period and oh no there's a list of turkey campaigns or something that is some analysis showing um, Turkey's actually rated higher than Khan winners or something on average on, around these dimensions in their system. And I just found that kind of interesting. I was like, I thought that the term was like just campaigns that bombed. This may be one of the kind of colloquialisms of the UK. The idea of something being a Turkey is that it, it's like, it's rubbish. You know, it's kind of like, it stinks. That like, you know, if, oh. if something's labeled as being a Turkey, it's like, it's not very good. So not in a commercial sense, in terms of like opinionated sense, is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, I don't know kind of what the process is of campaign when they when they want to co- when they want to label something Turkey of the Week. The first thing, the thing that you mentioned there was that System One did some research to show, you know, are the ter- are the Turkeys of the Week that campaign has labeled Turkeys of the Week? Are they actually really Turkeys or are they good campaigns? And what you're saying is that the research they they kind of pulled out was that based on their testing, a lot of the turkeys of the week perform quite well, which is not its not a good advert for the, <laughs> for the ad industry, is it? It's just unnecessary. And fair play to Vicky for calling it out. 
sorry, just coming back to the Byron Shops, uh, I remember they did that study around were marketing professionals in a room, could they pick the winners of ads on stage? I, I think this is a presentation they did, correct me if I'm wrong here. And so they have this big conference of like some of the best you know people in the world and they couldn't pick the winners of the campaign when they showed them. They all got it sort of wrong or, or more wrong than the average respondent. So like I think that just shows yeah. our inability to really pick yeah, there are other examples that I really like. I think uh, Ritson has a really good slide uh, that I can probably dig out from somewhere. Uh, Ritson has a very good slide where marketing people try to guess the adoption level of specific uh, digital platforms and other channels and, and how important they are. Oh, uh, I know this well, one. This is the yeah. um, the ones that I think uh, they use versus, uh, and they think everybody else is used by by yeah, virtue versus yeah, the ones that yeah, actually have um, viewership like numbers that. or something or like usage numbers. Yeah, huge yeah. disconnect. On that note, shall we wrap shall it we up? End? And what do you guys think? Yeah, that sounds good. You. If, you can, if you can turn this into something tight and cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. Master editor over here. Come on, I edit all my own stuff. Yeah. You're, you're so used to, you know, polishing a turd, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, what do you think of that episode? I mean, it's a new format. Just wanted to see what you guys think. But there's a lot of other things we could discuss in a multi-perspective kind of format. And I think some really interesting things comes out of more than one or two people in the interview. So tell me what you think. If you want more of this, let me know. Give me a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or email, and I can arrange more of this to happen and some more subjects that you want me to cover. But we've got a pretty good lineup of speakers for the next 12 months. So stay tuned and thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.